Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Hi folks, Dr. History here with another story from the Old West. It's been a good weekend. I had uh, six of my kids here and 13, all 13 of my grandkids. So it's been a good weekend, lots of fun and games and food. But before I begin, I need to apologize for last week. I told you about an instrument called the heliograph. Now, the heliograph was a mirror signaling device that was used by the Army in the uh, south, like Arizona, New Mexico, in the hunt for uh, Geronimo. And I didn't know for sure what they had used, but I have since found they used Morse code. Now, they also said that they had used some other type of uh, signaling, but the mostly what they used was all pretty much Morris code. So I apologize. So today, I'm going to tell you about a guy by the name of Frank Hamer. So we're going to start off, picture this. Frank Hamer rested his muscular frame against the trunk of a hackberry tree, he levered around into the chamber of his Winchester Model 1894 saddle ring carbine, then squinted down the rear sight. Drawing a long breath, he slowly squeezed the trigger and the hammer dropped. The next instant would mark the beginning of his career as the deadliest Texas Ranger of the 20th century. Now, Hamer actually was born in the Texas Hill Country in 1884. He was the son of a blacksmith. Frank spent long hours working with a sledgehammer and anvil in his father's shop. He grew into a powerful six-foot-two young man, all muscle, all gristle, uh, Probably in this day would have been a great football player. Anyway, Hamer had no formal schooling after the sixth grade. As he once said, quote, the only education I got was on a Mexican pony. Well, he lived much of his early life outdoors and became an expert rider, rifleman, hunter, tracker. Uh, Hamer drifted to the Pecos River country in West Texas and rode the ranges as a cowpuncher. He just was a kind of a cowboy type guy working for different outfits. But in 1905, as a volunteer posse man, he tracked down and captured several horse thieves. The sheriff of Pecos County was so impressed that he recommended young Hamer as a Texas ranger. So, in April 1906, Hamer enlisted in Company C of the State Ranger Force. Now then, rangers were rarely called Texas Rangers, so actually everyone connected with them was in Texas, and so obviously adding the state's name was kind of redundant, but they were merely really rangers or state rangers as they were called. Now Hamer's commander was a guy by the name of Captain John H. Rogers, and he was famous as one of the four great captains of that era. So Rogers did not look like a Western lawman. Picture this. He's a large man, wears glasses, gentlemanly and deeply, deeply religious. He was a crack detective and a deadly opponent in a gunfight. He had been a ranger since the age of 18 and had killed several bad guys in some pretty amazing uh, gun battles. Now, Rogers actually had twice been wounded in the line of duty, leaving one arm permanently injured. He carried a special rifle with a curved stock to compensate for his crippled arm. Now, Frank Hamer idolized this guy. He thought he was wonderful. He idolized this captain, and he wanted to be like him. And Captain Rogers became the most important influence in Hamer's professional life. 
Now, the Rangers served not only as a border protection force riding the Rio Grande in search of outlaws, smugglers, cattle thieves, but they also assisted local officers. And because lawmen were few and uh, far between, the levels of crime and violence were high. So the outlaws figured they could pretty well do anything they wanted to. But the Rangers rode from one hot spot to another, helping out the local police and sheriffs. And during Hamer's first year as a ranger, he acquired more experience than many modern law officers get throughout their whole career. He rode several thousand miles throughout the border region and the Big Bend, obtaining knowledge of the country and its people. He learned to conduct surveillance, to work undercover, and to investigate all kinds of crimes. He arrested seven men for murder, and he took part in an event in Del Rio that folks would talk about for more than 100 years afterwards. So picture this. Del Rio was just kind of a dusty border town. About 2,000 people was all. Uh, It was situated on the Rio Grande, midway between Laredo and the Big Bend. On November 30th, 1906, Captain Rogers received word that a wealthy sheet man by the name of Blake Cawthorn had disappeared. So he began an investigation and quickly found that Cawthorn had been at the bank in Del Rio and he had paid a stranger by the name of Ed Putnam $4,500 for a flock of sheep. Well, Putnam had last been seen heading out of town in a uh, wagon, uh, which was found abandoned about 12 miles north of Del Rio. Now, Captain Rogers with Rangers uh, John Hamer, a couple of other guys named Hudson and Robinson, the county sheriff, they spent the night in a manhunt for Putnam. Well, in the morning, they got word that Cawthorn, the wealthy sheep man, had been found in his buggy, shot to death. At about the same time, the Rangers learned that another stockman by the name of John Ralston, who had also engaged in a sheep deal with Ed Putnam, had also vanished. So things are getting a little suspicious, kind of pointing towards this Ed Putnam as the, as the bad guy. Well, the town was kind of gripped in a fear of excitement with... Citizens convinced that Cawthorn and Ralston had been robbed and murdered by Mexican bandits, so the rangers paid no attention to the rumors and kept up their hunt for Putnam. Now, Rogers inspected Cawthorn's body and concluded that Putnam might have circled back to Del Rio to get on a train for escape. Well, as the lawmen watched all the outbound trains, Sheriff Robinson got a tip that Putnam was holed up in a hotel situated near the railroad tracks on the outskirts of town. The sheriff and his deputies, along with Rogers, Hamer, and Hudson, rushed to the hotel. It was 6 p.m. in the evening, December 1st, 1906. Well, Sheriff Robinson placed seven men in front of the hotel, while Rogers, Hamer, Hudson, and another posse man covered the rear. Now, the sheriff called for the women inside to come out, and they did so. Then he yelled to Putnam that he knew he was in there. And as Rogers later explained, at first, one of the women denied that he was in there. Afterwards, they admitted that he was inside, and they carried him word from the sheriff to the Sheriff Robinson to come out and surrender. Well, the lawman allowed the women, uh, one woman to re-enter the house and talk with Putnam. She came back out. She said, he won't come out. She told the officers, he's got a funny look in his eyes and says he won't give up. Well, half an hour passed, and the Sheriff Robinson kind of lost his patience. By this time, a crowd of more than 100 citizens had gathered, some of them armed, and he feared mob violence. So Robinson ordered his posse man to open fire on the house. 
Now, picture this. John Hamer, he's in the back, all right? He's crouched behind a hackberry tree at the rear of the house. He held his fire. Now, the other officers just started firing. I mean, 30, 40 shots through the windows, the walls. And, uh, but Hamer, in kind of a display of steady diligence and calm that would mark his later career, Frank Hamer continued to hold his fire while carefully watching the rear windows. Well, several times he saw a curtain kind of move, kind of rustle just a little. Then he spotted a pistol barrel poking through the curtain. Well, Hamer took dead aim at the six-gun barrel and squeezed the trigger. The Winchester carbine roared and the heavy bullet tore through the curtain and ripped into Putnam. Now, this is a little gory, but this is what happened. It uh, slammed into the killer's face just under his left eye, went downward, shattered his jaw, then entered his neck, cut in the jugular vein, passed out of the neck, plowed into his left shoulder, and exited through his left arm. Putnam crumpled to the floor dead. Now, obviously, that's a pretty severe wound, right? So anyway, the posseman heard a loud thud as Putnam fell, but they could not see inside the house. Now, Captain Rogers said later, quote, However, not knowing whether he was dead, wounded, or just pretending to be dead, the house was not entered for a time, and our party reloaded and fired many times until after this, until perhaps something like 200 rounds had been fired when the house was entered and Putnam found to be dead, receiving only one fatal shot. Putnam uh, actually was still holding on to a six-gun uh, six uh, in his dead hand. The Captain Rogers took three guns from his body, a 32 caliber Colt single-action army revolver, a 32 caliber Winchester rifle, and a newfangled German Luger automatic pistol. Now, the killer's pockets held 300 cartridges and $3,500 in cash. But picture this, folks. The walls of the house have been shredded by 500 bullets. And as an eyewitness said, quote, the furniture in the hotel was completely wrecked, even the stove legs being shot off. Well, the next day, John Ralston's body, he was the other sheep man. His dead body was found north of town where Putnam had dumped it. And Putnam had robbed and killed both victims. A Del Rio photographer had been a witness to the deadly shootout, and he actually took a photo of the dead Putnam, which that was a pretty common thing. You know, they'd prop up the dead person. A lot of times they'd be in a, in a pine box. But anyway, he took a photo of the dead Putnam and invited Captain Rogers and his men to come to his studio and to sit for a commemorative picture. Well, Rose shot four images of the Rangers with their rifles displayed prominently. Then Rose had Hamer and Hudson take off their coats so their six-shooters and cartridge belts would be showing and photograph them both standing and kneeling with the rifles in hand. And this photograph actually has become kind of a, an iconic in Texas Ranger history and, and lore. Anyway, Captain Rogers presented Frank Hamer with Putnam's Colt revolver, saying since this was his, quote, first gunfight as a ranger, he thought he should have a memento of the occasion. So Hamer's commanding officer was greatly impressed with Frank's coolness, his deadly marksmanship, and in the years to follow, Frank Hamer would eventually become the most famous lawman in the Southwest, noted for his skill in investigating murders and protecting prisoners from lynch mobs. Now get this, he engaged in 52 gun battles and killed or participated in killing at least 21 bad guys in the line of duty. And that all took place long before he got on the trail of Bonnie and Clyde. 
So in the early 1930s, Bonnie and Clyde's crime spree had generated a lot of media coverage, and it kind of embarrassed the law enforcement and the government officials across a half a dozen states. So on the go-ahead from a Governor Ferguson, Hamer was persuaded to accept an assignment to hunt down the Barrel Gang. So upon accepting the assignment, Hamer was, and this is according to his own account, commissioned as an officer of the Texas Highway Patrol. So here it is, folks, 9.15 a.m. on May 23rd, 1934. After 102 days of shadowing, they met on a desolate rural road near Gibsland, Louisiana. Barrow stopped his car at the ambush spot, and the posse's 150-round fusillade was... They were just... 150 (laughs) shots being uh, fired was so thunderous that... People for miles around thought a logging crew had used dynamite to fell a particularly huge tree. Well, accounts of the last instances before the gunfire kind of vary widely. There's different people's opinions, but the only agreement between was that a deputy by the name of Oakley was perhaps a little nervous, jumped the gun, stood and fired the opening burst, and that his bullet into Barrow's left temple killed the outlaw instantly. Well, the posse then fired up another 100-plus rounds, and any number of which would have killed uh, uh, Parker and and also Barrow. So that's the story of Frank Hamer, and I have found out also that there's a movie coming out. I haven't seen it. Uh, It's called The Highwayman, with Kevin Costner playing the part of Hamer. So I don't know how good the movie is, but uh, it's based on the life of John Hamer. So here he is, one of the more famous uh, Texas Rangers, uh, trackers, a guy that uh, put a lot of outlaws away. So I thought that was a pretty fascinating story about John Hamer, folks. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed the story, and we'll see you next week. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style. All for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.